Hi fellow Marists and other listeners, welcome to this episode of the Marist Association of St Marceline Champagne's podcast. I'm Tracy Dublay from the membership team and today I'm presenting a collection of readings from the November edition of our Christ Life publication. To read the full edition, check your email inboxes from last Wednesday the 1st of November or go to the association website marisassociation.org.au and click on the news menu tab or scroll down the homepage to the latest news. Amita Maris this month is Rola Wadi from Dundas in Sydney, and we've included the audio of Rola's Mitamara segment for you to hear. This episode, our editorialist is Deputy Leader of the Maris Association, Julia Lederwash. Now, there are articles and flyers that we don't read in this recording, the first being the release of the 2024 Programs and Events Booklet, which you can find on the website homepage. Bookings open at midday on the 9th of November. The Star of the Sea Province's Laudato Sea Action Committee put out a page to acknowledge Pope Francis's Laudato Deum document and encourages all listeners to read this important exhortation. Members from local groups in the Sydney Inner West region are invited to the Term 4 Regional Gathering at Parramatta Marist High School 4pm on 30th of November. To RSVP, you'll have to go to the flyer in the Christ Life email or go to the events tab on the website. We had two reports from Gavin Martin at John Terry Catholic College. The first was about their local gathering with guests Nathan Ahern and Brother Bill Tarrant and the other a story, photos and videos from the JTCC Annual Plant Sale and Barbecue which raised over $2,500 for Australian Mara Solidarity Programs. So well done to everyone there. And Nathan Ahern from the Secretariat of the Laity tells us about the Bridge Builders Volunteer Program and showcases the recent experience of a young Marist College Canberra old boy, Matt Fairfax, in the eco-spirituality community in Fiji. Wow, it's a big addition. So it's time to grab your cuppa, settle into your seats and let's go. Hello fellow Marists, this is Julia Lederwash and I'm a council member of the Marist Association and I have written the editorial for the November edition of Christ Life. Who's listening? As I write this editorial, the Synod on Synodality is taking place in Rome, October the 4th to the 29th. The Synod emphasises listening, discernment and mission. We, as a church community, were invited to pray, to listen and offer advice to the voting members of the Synod, which for the first time, at the invitation of Pope Francis, has included women. Another significant difference in this Synod is the layout. Participants gather around round tables, which encourages collegiality, inclusivity and listening, rather than the traditional hierarchical layout. All participants will have equal time to share their thoughts in group discussions. Francis will hear more voices, different perspectives, diversity. I noted a comment I heard that he will be listening more to the flock than to the shepherds. In response to Pope Francis' invitation to inform the Synod about the voice of Catholic women, Catholic Women Speak, an international online forum, commissioned the International Survey of Catholic Women to explore the concerns, insights, hopes, fears, experiences and suggestions of Catholic women. 
17,000 valid responses were gathered from participants across 104 countries. 1,769 women from Australia completed the survey, 11% of the full data set. Most of these women were active in some way in the parish, and although they may have expressed frustrations with discriminatory structures within the church, the majority, that is 90%, agreed their Catholic identity was very important to them, and they expressed hope that their collective voice would be heard and changes would ensue. It was interesting to note the clear differences in generational respondents, where older responses, the plus 70 age group, were more critical of the church in areas of clericalism, abuse, lack of transparency, the subordinate role of women, and were supportive of same-sex marriage and homilies delivered by women than was the younger age group, the 18 to 40. The younger respondents were more conservative than the older respondents who supported change and reform. 83% of the plus 70 age group compared to 21% of the 18 to 40 age group. The reasons for these generational differences require further analysis, perhaps because the older generation has had broader life experiences and have moved through different stages in one's life journey. Note, of the Australian respondents, 34.5% were from the plus 70 age group and 17.4% from the 18 to 40 age group. Since the 18 to 25 age group only represented 2.9%, they were combined with 14.5% of the 20 six to 40 age group. There is a lot to unpack in this survey, but what does it inform us as an Association of Christ's Faithful? The Association of St Marston Champagne was born out of listening, listening to the call for co-responsibility in the mission of the Maris brothers to make Jesus Christ known and loved to young people, particularly the most vulnerable. This was necessary to keep the Maris mission viable and vital. Lay people, male and female, have significant roles in all Maris ministries. Our association now has over 1,000 members. The importance of listening and dialogue is essential to remain vital and authentic as we live the gospel of Christ in a Marian way, simply, with humility, caring compassion in relation with each other and those around us. Relationships are very important to us. The pandemic introduced us to online gatherings, and though they cannot compete with face-to-face -face gatherings around the table, they have continued to enable us to gather together, to pray, to listen, to reflect, to converse. Fellow Maras come together across the country and the Pacific. I encourage you to join us on our next online gathering. Back to the Synod. This is the first of two sessions, the next, October 24. And we now wait as to whether this collective women's voice was listened to and concerns addressed. Thank you. It's Tracy here with an article written by Michael Everson and myself. National Virtual Gathering. Maris Love to Connect. Maris Love to Connect. As many will be aware, on the evening of Wednesday, 18 October, the Association held a virtual gathering for members across Australia. Over 80 members participated, most as individuals, some as local groups, as well as connecting, reconnecting with others. There were some great opportunities for both input and discussion. I would like to thank Mr Nathan Ahern and Miss Tracy DeBlay for all their hard work to make this event possible. Feedback from the night has been really encouraging, and clearly there is an appetite for more. 
the Association will look at organising more such events next year. Thanks to all who participated and watch this space. Recorded video of gathering. An edited version of the National Virtual Gathering is available on the Morris Association YouTube channel if you missed it or would like to reference it for further reflection. Connection and belonging for all members. Towards the end of the gathering, Michael Everson invited participants to let us know if they would like to meet again, perhaps in a year. This invitation extends to all members. Would you like to meet next year? If so, when and how often? What would you like to discuss? How would you like to connect? Via social media, in a Facebook chat group, in a WhatsApp chat group? Would you like to participate in or start a special interest group? Jenny Miller, for example, invited members passionate about the climate and the environment to join her in a Marist Earth Movement. We can help promote the group and see if others are interested in joining you. Please feel free to get in touch by emailing to marist.association at marists.org.au. Hello, my name is Mark O'Connor. I'm a Marist brother from the Star of the Sea province, uh, and I'm also a member of the uh, St. Marcel and Champagne Association in Australia. I happen to be here in Rome as the Vicar for Communications for the Parramatta Diocese, writing letters back to my diocese in Australia about the Global Synod on Synodality that is just about to conclude. I have three main points to make as observations, and you can read my reflections in a link provided in this video. The first is that uh, this synod is quite unique. It's an experiment of sorts, but for the first time, uh, of the over 350 delegates now comprise of religious members of institutes, lay women and lay men who have the right to vote as well as many other facilitators and advisors who are present. So it's unique that all the other synods of bishops since 1971 have been only bishops. And frankly, many have commented, even bishops, that many of these previous synods were pretty boring in many ways because they comprised of bishops getting up and giving speeches for several minutes and that took place for a month and people would go to sleep. And they say that Pope John Paul II would even bring his breviary into the synods and read the breviary while the bishops were giving speeches. So it didn't require all that much effort. You could fall asleep if you were a bishop or you could be absent because you were in the synod uh, tiered seating in the hall and no one would really know. And there was a sense in which the bishops who were present many of them, but not all, were often telling the Pope, especially John Paul II and Benedict, what they already wanted to hear. They quoted them extensively. Now, that's not a bad thing. However, Pope Francis has decided on a new approach. He's asked that the, it's still a synod of bishops, but that the involvement of lay people be serious and real, because you know, and I know, that all throughout the church, there has been a serious crisis a loss of credibility of the church in many different countries, not only in English-speaking countries, but in other countries, especially around the area of sexual abuse. 
And Pope Francis has been talking about the danger of clericalism and the danger of authoritarianism and the danger of people not being fully involved and therefore walking away from the church, which we see in great numbers has already been happening in the last 20 to 25 years especially. So the discussions are taking place uh, in the Paul VI audience hall around round tables. Those of us who are, have been involved in Marist chapters since the Second Vatican Council would be well aware of this approach of discussion and dialogue, questioning, listening, praying, and coming to a communal discernment. In many ways, religious life, don't forget Pope Francis is a religious, uh, has much to teach the universal church, and it has taught the universal church to engage in dialogue with its members in this new way. So this process, which allowed much silence, much respectful listening of each other, and mixing around of groups so that people were talking to different groups of people and in different language groups for the whole of the month was a, an enrichment for many. Many voices have told me that the whole experience of this synod was a very, very positive experience. It was also very tiring and very exhausting because unlike in the past, as I mentioned, previous synod delegates did not have to engage all that much. But in this process of this synod, everybody had to be involved and it was very obvious when they, if they decided not to be involved. So the whole process of this synod has been an enormous gift to the universal church. The second major thing is that this process has allowed uh, respectful dialogue and encounter and therefore tensions and disagreements uh, have arisen. There are a few stories of a couple of bishops storming out of the small groups they were involved in because they said this is not a synod of bishops and they didn't want to listen to lay people. However, the vast majority of the bishops, of whom there are 75% of the total number, were very impressed by the quality and the witness, especially of women. And one of the extraordinary gifts of this synod is that it's the first time that we have been able to listen in a formal synod of the bishops to the experience and to the witness of women, who after all, do most of the work in the church and have often been ignored. So a very powerful witness of the women has been central to the success of this first session of the synod. Also, it is a global synod. You remember that Rana said that Vatican II was the first time the church had come together as a global church. Well, at this synod, we have representatives from Africa, from Asia, from Latin America, from Central America, from North America, from Oceania, from all parts of the world, from Mongolia. Uh, and it is enriching to see how the universal church is not just one holy Roman Catholic church in a monolithic structure. It's not a fortress, but it is a as Pope Francis says, a house of hospitality and also a field hospital. Field hospital. That has meant, of course, that the Synod has been especially interested in listening to the voices of those on the margins, inside the church and outside the church. So the witness of women that I mentioned, but also the witness of people uh, who are suffering uh, prejudice and discrimination because of racism, because of um, people involved uh, 
in LGBTQ uh, ministry and those who are unable to feel, who feel alienated because of authoritarian pastors in their local churches, have been able to speak up. Of course, there are many, many differences. Of course, there are many, many different theologies. That's normal. The church is a house with many mansions, as it says in John's Gospel. So we have a, a lot to uh, be grateful for that this process has allowed conflict and disagreement, which is a necessary part of being alive. You're only, there are, when you're dead, there are no tensions, but while you are alive, there are always tensions in life and in the church. And it is healthy that they have come to the surface. I predict that when the next phase begins between the conclusion of this first phase of the Synod at the, on Saturday and the beginning of the next session in October 24, there will be a fair degree of polarization because unlike in the past, the difficulties and the problems have not been swept underneath the carpet. And so there, there will be vigorous debate. But the good thing about this Synod is that it has allowed people to talk to each other frankly with civility and with great grace and listening. Even people who were opponents of Pope Francis and opponents of the synodal process, like Cardinal Mueller from Germany, have been able to see that there has been some good in it. There are other critics there, of course, mainly from the North American Catholic right-wing media who are determined to um, bring down the whole synodal project. And of course, they're there on social media. I would not pay too much attention to them because um, they seem to have a theology that the only person the Holy Spirit can't work through in the church these days is Pope Francis. That's a very strange theology when they have spent the last 25 years arguing for loyalty to Pope John Paul II. That's unusual and I think it shows that there is a, uh, a dysfunction, particularly in the English-speaking world amongst the North American elites in the North American Catholic Church. However, the journey will go on. So the synodal document, the synthesis, will be released soon. Then there, it will be, there will be reception by the local churches. It will be sent back to the local churches all around the world, and they will go through a process of listening again to their delegates, of reading the conclusions or the, the, the um, provisional conclusions, and then also they will make recommendations and there'll be special commissions set up because there are issues that are um, ongoing that the second session of the, of the Synodality Synod will have to address. One is the issue of women in the church. Uh, there is this issue of women's deacons, which has been there for two papal commissions now and people are saying, let's make a decision. We've been talking about this for years now. And then there are other issues which are more broadly connected with ministry. So then the Pope will uh, start the second session of the Synod in October next year. And what he will do is after they have gone through a, another process, we're not sure whether it's the same process as this Synod, but he will then, there will be another document and then he will eventually, as the successor of Peter, make his own discernment about an issue of apostolic exhortation about what he sees. Of course, this involves all sorts of issues that involve canon law, that involve the place of marginalized people in the church, and also the selection of candidates for the seminary uh, and for pastoral ministry. The Pope the other day gave a very strong intervention 
worried about the formation of seminarians in the church and that, that they are still far too clerical and out of touch with the ordinary lives of people. So in conclusion, um, I'm very grateful to have this opportunity to tell you that the Synod on Synodality first session has been a moment of hope and of joy. It's not the end of the story. The Camino goes on, but rest assured that in Pope Francis, we have a leader who is listening to the people of God and he is encouraging his uh, pastors and his lay people to take an active participation and to listen to the spirit and we can confidently go forward that our church will continue to implement the Second Vatican Council. Uh, Brother Bob O'Connor from the Morris Brothers Community at Marceline House, Randwick in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, and formerly from the staff of the Hermitage Retreat House at Mittagong, with our reflection for the November edition of Christ's Life 2023. So as we move toward the end of another year, let's revisit briefly our Marist roots, not just stories of young Marcelin at his boyhood in Marles, but then the journey of his story and his early Marist colleagues via the great Marian shrines in Le Puy and Fauvier in France, in the major seminary at Lyon, his first parish at Lavalle and beyond, and especially remember the centrality in this story and journey of the young Jewish woman, Miriam of Nazareth, known, of course, in their early context as the predominant image of Mary, as she was best recognized in those days, Notre Dame of Le Puy, a famous black Madonna image of her. But what is remarkable in our story is that for Marcelin and Jean-Claude Collin, the founder of the Marist Fathers, especially, the other young Maris, even back then, were coming to know her in a very different way. Marceline's favourite image, Notre Bonmaire, our good mother, says so much. She was even then touching their souls with her gentle but powerful image as nurturer of faith, mother, disciple. This has been their special gift to us all as the young Marist dreamed she would always be. And I quote now from a beautiful work on the life of Jean-Claude Collin, founder of the Marist Fathers by Donald Kerr, SM. He writes, Jean-Claude Collin was a child of his time and full of youthful fervor and zeal. The rule he was working on for the Society of Mary was no more than a description of how he believed that those whom Mary chose for her work for the church in the end time should act. They were to form an ideal family which would cheerfully welcome the demanding conditions for becoming true sons of our good mother, imitating her selflessness, her humility, her devotion to God. He was reacting against the imperfections of the present state of the world and boldly imagined a radically different world, one of his maxims, hidden and unknown. He came to see in this Miriam's own manner of being and acting in the church as Jesus called it to be. Gradually, it became for him a way of describing how Maris should live and how they should conduct their apostolates. A third fragment from Collin's writings concerned Miriam's role, which was always central to his thought. 
He spoke of it in terms of what she did at the time of the apostles in the early community of church and in these latter times. Yes, he says, I do not mind repeating it here once more, the words, I was the mainstay of the newborn church community. I shall be again at the end of time. That quote served us in the very earliest days of the society as a foundation and an encouragement. They were always before us. And above all, his powerful challenge for all Marists, and to quote, to think, feel, judge, and act as Mary did, so as to be a new way of being church. Unquote. Hi, my name is Rola. Um, I'm a school support officer at St. Patrick's Maris College, Dundas. I've been there for the past 29 years and um, I belong to the Sydney Inner West group. How did I first get involved in the Marist? I am an ex-Marist student. I was one of the first girls to be part of the co-ed when Wenedy College went co-ed in year 11 um, at Auburn. I've uh, my brothers uh, went to Marist school, so I've always it's always been in our family. I guess it wasn't until I joined St Patrick's Marist College that I realised what it was like to be a, what being Marist actually meant. Um, even though I went to school at a Marist school. To be Marist for me is to do things in the Marian way. Being a school support officer, I, um, although I'm not in the office all the time, I do work with lots of students and obviously interact with um, teachers. I think it's important that the way that we interact with students is in a compassionate way, in the Marian way. I feel that every student is deserving to um, be treated unique and, and with compassion. We, we have a lot of students that come from um, different backgrounds. We don't know what's going on in their home life, but there's a lot of students struggling out there. So I hope that anything that I can do in my daily work life can make their, their life a little bit easier, if, even if it's just, you know, smiling and um, just providing a friendly face to them. And if they've got any, if they need any assistance, that I'm hoping that I can provide that to them in um, the best possible way. How does this enrich my spiritual life? Well, I just feel that um, that it gives gives me a sense of purpose. It helps me get through the tough days, um, and I guess we all have them. But also, when when the easy days, it helps me smile. Um, I feel that's important. That that you know that it works both ways. Uh, what encouraged me to join the Maris Association? I've had a very long association with um, the Maris Brothers. Uh, like I said, going to a Maris school, I've got a really close friend who's a Maris brother and we're still very close now. Um, so I've seen a lot of changes um, with, with the Maris Brothers and what's going on. Um, there's less brothers. So I guess from my point of view, it's I was interested to know how, as a layperson, I can continue... Um, not the work of the Maris Brothers because I don't know if I'm capable of that, but to spread the word and to to keep um, that sense of um, Maris going so that, you know, because there aren't enough brothers to do that. I guess I didn't need much encouraging to, to join the Maris Association because I, I like getting involved and I was interested to see how, how I could do it. 
sense of belonging, uh, what gives that to me. I guess the the work that is being done by various members of the Morris Association, the I guess the emails that we receive, the invitation to gatherings, the invitation to to conferences, to join in a meal. Um, I recently had done footsteps to through the school program and just working with different Maris people, I guess gave me a sense of wanting wanting to learn more and wanting to be part of something that um, that is big. In my spare time, I like to garden, um, catching up with friends and family, to join in for meals, uh, lots and lots of coffees. I like, um, my husband and I like to go for lots of walks and we've got a few dogs that we, we take for walks as well. Uh, what brings me joy? My family brings me lots of joy um, and being loved and I hope that I can pass that on to other people as well. This is Brother Michael Flanagan recording the Reflection for Christ Life, November 2023. Remembering in November. Catholics take time in November to remember two groups of people we are closely connected with. Although we can no longer see them or talk to them, on November 1st, we celebrate All Saints Day and on November 2nd, we mark All Souls Day. Both days are sacred days remembering our connections, not only to one another, and there is no one to whom we are not connected, but also the unbreakable bonds that unite us to anyone who ever lived and especially those we knew and loved. All Saints Day is an ancient observance, remembering those who have passed before us, particularly those who have been acknowledged as holy or hallowed and whom today we honour as saints. This day was originally called All Hallows Day and its celebration was prepared for on the previous day, Halloween. A lot of modern-day nonsense has virtually hidden the deep significance of this day from us. Obviously, it is a time set aside to remember our saints, especially those who may not get a day of their own in the liturgical calendar. To name some of our saints, the very human and relatable Saint Peter, for instance, whom Jesus told, to strengthen his brothers and sisters. St. Teresa of Avila, a doctor of the church who imagines seven mansions in our spiritual journey that lead us to the centre, God. She stressed always that God is with us where we are. St. Clare of Assisi, Francis's loving and faithful companion, who wrote the first rule for women religious. St Maximilian Kolbe, who was murdered by the Nazis when he swapped places with a condemned man who had a wife and children. St Damien of Molokai, who volunteered to tend the lepers on the island of Molokai and who eventually died of leprosy.
These and many others are real people who lived and loved fully and who struggled, as we all do, to integrate and fulfil their lives as human beings. However, there are countless others, many of whom have not been officially canonised. St Paul in Romans 15.25 says, I am going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. A curious use of the word saints, but in another translation it becomes of the Lord's people. In 1 Corinthians 1.2, Paul states, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Saints are those who are the Lord's people. We are sanctified in Christ. Therefore, on All Saints Day, we confidently recall all those whom we have known, loved and admired who led lives attached to the Lord and who called on him throughout their lives. Many will go unheralded and will be forgotten to history, but they will not be forgotten by their Lord nor by those who love them in life and who deeply appreciated them. All Souls Day recalls to mind those we knew and loved and who wait for us on the far side banks of Jordan as the old song says. All of us can recall people who have died, who occupied significant places in our lives and whose passing may have left unfillable gaps. In my experience in schools, prayer services focusing on those who have died on All Souls Day were the most appealing to young people and the most moving. This touches far into our humanity our connectedness and our vulnerability. We remember too on this day that our faith makes a strong statement about those who have died. And a quote from 1 Thessalonians, We want you to be quite certain, brothers and sisters, about those who have fallen asleep, to make sure that you do not grieve as others do, who have no hope. God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Unquote. Note well, we are not told not to grieve. This is normal and healthy. But we are told not to grieve like those without hope. To such people, death is an annihilation and complete destruction. We remember too that we can't have anyone forever not even those we can't live without. I had a sister who died at six days old from a severe medical complication. I was four years old and, of course, have no memories of her at all. In the family, she was always remembered and often spoken about, and I could never really relate to her as a real person. A few years ago, another sister discovered where she had been buried, in a field at Rookwood Cemetery, where many hundreds of babies were interred over many decades. No marked graves, only a map that gives you a vague location. 
I know that my father attended Marietta's funeral and I can only imagine the grief and sadness he and my mother felt at the time. Strangely, neither of them spoke of her funeral in detail, nor did they reveal her resting place, if they knew it at all. That was the way things were. My point is that when I visit that place now, I do get a very real sense of her, and she has become a person in my mind more so than ever before. She lived for six days, but if given a chance to come back from where she is now, I doubt she would be interested. Not only is she with her parents and her two sisters, but she is with him who writes straight on crooked lines and who makes all things new. As the title of that great song from the BG says, don't forget to remember these things and these powerful connections we all share. Thank you. Hello, my name is Andrea Grant, Senior Leader Formation and Youth Ministry based in the Mara Centre in Melbourne. And here is my contribution to Christ Life for this month, titled Jesus of My Imagination. Over the course of 2023, I have been exploring my new role by immersing myself in the mission statement at its heart, sharing in Mary's work of bringing Christ life to birth in young people, or more simply, to make Jesus Christ known and loved. While engaging with the formation offered, from our youngest students through to our most senior educators and association members, I have been privileged to witness the joy of encounter with Jesus through prayer, story and conversation. At the heart of all these experiences, I have sat with the question, who is this Jesus Marists are meeting and coming to know and love? In his 2015 book, In the Shelter, Irish poet Podrick O'Tuma details his experience working with primary school students in a retreat centre, where he invited them to enter a space of imaginative conversation with Jesus. Many of the responses of the young children are delightfully entertaining. I decided to take a walk on the sea, and as I was walking, climbing over the waves, I noticed Jesus coming towards me. He was in a purple tutu and wearing a coconut bra. I saw somebody lonely and Jesus sent a dog to them for company. And Jesus came towards me wearing a tuxedo and sipping a martini. Others give expression to these children's best experience of family. When Jesus said hello and knew my name, it was like my dad does when I come home from school. When he put his hand on my head, it felt like home. Throughout all these reflections, a picture is painted of a Jesus who offers relationship through gentle invitation, non-judgmental listening and patient accompaniment. This is a Jesus who the children desire to be with. I can understand that. Imaginative prayer is not restricted to children, of course. 
Indeed, it has been a central feature of contemplative prayer for many centuries. American Jesuit James Martin, quoting fellow Jesuit William Barry, says, We should not distrust the natural gifts that God gives us, including our imagination. If the use of our imagination leads us to God, then we can have confidence that the Lord is using our imaginations for his purposes and our good. Trust that the Holy Spirit of God who dwells in our hearts to guide our imaginations, to reveal the truth of God to us. As a spiritual director, I have been privileged to accompany a number of people through the Ignatian spiritual exercises where the use of imaginative prayer is regularly employed. While it doesn't come easily to all people, its power to draw people into intimate relationship with Jesus is profound. It is endlessly fascinating and joy-filled to hear people share how they have encountered Jesus throughout the course of his ministry, dined with him, prayed with him, laughed with him, and enjoyed all that deep friendship offers. But perhaps the most sacred of these moments is when people share where they are in their imaginations when Jesus takes his final breath on the cross. In every case, it appears they have been precisely where they have been led to be by the God of imagination who is telling them something of who they are created and called to be in relationship with other people, with the rest of creation and with Jesus. Thank you for listening. God bless. Hello, Maris friends. This is Adam Burns, Communications and Engagement Officer from Australian Maris Solidarity. This month, AMS shares about transforming education for children in Kalugia, Timor-Leste. The education system in Timor-Leste has faced an uphill battle since the withdrawal of Indonesian forces in 1999. The destruction of schools, property and educational resources continue to limit the opportunities available to young Timorese. Many schools are overcrowded, students in rural areas are forced to travel great distances, and what few educational resources remain are often in Portuguese or Indonesian, so teachers and students often have to translate through multiple languages in each education session. Maris in Australia have been integral supporters of rebuilding education in Timor-Leste. Through AMS, schools like Santa Rosina's in Kelakai now have new facilities, enabling safe access to education for its students. On the other side of the equation, the Instituto Católico Parafomacal de Profesores, or the ICFP, in Bacau, has trained over 600 teachers now working in Catholic and government schools throughout Timor-Leste. That legacy of support will continue through the rebuilding of classroom buildings at the Kalugia Primary School. Situated in a remote village in a mountainous region, this small school serves 162 students, including 86 boys and 76 girls, aged between 6 and 11. Eight dedicated teachers offer instruction in subjects such as religion, mathematics, Portuguese, sports and tetum. 
School hours are limited to the morning from 8 to 12. The community has long been contemplating the need for either repairing the existing structure or constructing a new one, as the current condition does not adequately support the learning process. Given the current state, a new building is imperative, as the old one is no longer maintainable. When there is heavy rain, the school often has to close because the structure is unsafe. The current school comprises six classrooms, one of which is divided into three sections for the principal, storage, and a teacher's room. Unfortunately, there are no toilet facilities available. Access to water becomes challenging during the dry season. The children just sit on the floor. The school is in very bad condition, says Paul Francesca Correa, the school's director. If they go to the toilet, they have to go to the river. A new school building would mean that children have a safe place to learn. The building would include a library, a storeroom, an archive room and cleaning facilities. Plans include 13 toilets, including facilities for those with disabilities and an additional two separate toilets for staff. With an improved school environment, it's anticipated that student enrolment would increase, which in turn will lead to more students advancing to middle schools like San Teresina School in Kelakai. Every child has a right to learn in a safe place. With your support, AMS is working across Timor to improve access to education for young people. We invite you to consider supporting our 2023 Christmas appeal. In doing so, you help AMS ensure that children will have access to new schools and safe places to learn. It was extremely clear the amazing impact that AMS has had through school rebuilds, writes International Programs Officer Taylor Lemon. It transcends the school environment into the whole community. Hello, this is Pat O'Reilly, Director Mission Inclusion and Identity at Marist 180, and this is our October article for Christ's Life. Marist 180 is unique. It is unique in the Marist world and family, and unique in the coming together of the range of services programs, children, young people, adults and families that are located in the Maris 180 orbit. This uniqueness presents a very specific opportunity and challenge when considering the needs and desires of staff and their formation. For some years, pre-COVID and on hold for that time, thought and ideas were shared, aimed at an offering a formation program for our middle leaders. This week, October 25 and 6, this program came to life and fruition. Brother Tony Leon did a wonderful job in making this happen, drawing on his diverse experiences of life and ministry, including time served at Marist Youth Care. Tony met with staff, asked questions, heard their responses, insights and suggestions, floated ideas and crafted and facilitated a two-day experience that was a first for Marist 180. What Tony did provided for the group of 34 middle leaders who gathered was greatly appreciated and warmly received. Tony introduced the time thus. Our leadership roles call us to engage with those whom we work and the art of listening is crucial. This workshop explores the skill of listening through the three Marist virtues of humility, simplicity, and modesty. These traditional virtues of Mary will be seen through the contemporary lens of some current leadership thinking, 
which sees the leadership superpowers today as humility, empathy and mindfulness. This workshop will include a moment of practising some realistic guidelines in the hard skills of mentoring. However, it is the soft skills of leadership which engages relationship and connection with those whom we serve at Maris 180. As a creative means of consolidating the theoretical ideas, the workshop will include a chance to mate and eat vegetarian dumplings. It is also a chance to get out of our heads and enjoy a hands-on experience, which will involve hospitality, nourishment and community. Initially disappointed that our dates and timing found the hermitage full, the welcome, space, setting and hospitality that the Mount Carmel venue and staff provided was first class. As with any time of retreat, the input and the sharing with colleagues was just as valuable and important as the time to stop, breathe, reflect, be given permission to move beyond the busyness and the demands of caring, supporting, leading and managing of children, young people, colleagues, as well as family, friends and all those in our respective worlds. Tony skillfully and invitationally offered us great sources of wisdom, research, ideas and practice from a very diverse range of sources and thinkers, new and ancient. The gifts of humility, simplicity and modesty considered in being and doing, in and with self, others and spirit, in our work and relationships, personal and professional, provided a deep well for people to draw from at this time and in time to come. Tony then practically and metaphorically applied simplicity, humility and modesty in the making and later eating of dumplings. The dumpling and its various diverse and derivative forms across countries and cultures invited us to focus on and celebrate teamwork, attention to detail, creativity and the valuing of what lies within, within as well as savouring the culinary delights produced and gifting some steamers to staff to return to their houses and engage the children and young people in their care with an opportunity to do the same. Day two began reflectively, allowing some distilling and ruminating over the content and experience of the previous day. Following this, directors Julie Collier and Jonathan Raja both led workshops with those assembled focused on other valuable ideas and perspectives that our middle leaders may wish to engage with for growth and capacity building, focused on coaching and mentoring and the importance of teamwork, language and influence. Although developed entirely separately, there were clear and distinct resonances with what Tony had presented and it opened up thinking and opportunities for middle leaders formation in the future. Many positive affirming words emerged from participants. Colleagues were grateful for the time and space, opportunities to connect and get to know each other beyond work and roles, spend time meeting colleagues from other regions and programs and services. Having forged this path, we look forward to future times where formation opportunities for staff can be offered and embraced. This is Brother Michael Flanagan, the Province Archivist.
reading the Archives article for Christ Life, November 2023. Sifting through school magazines, St. Patrick's College Sale, 1942-1944. One of the most valuable sources of information and historical documentation are the annual school magazines kept in the archives. For some schools, publishing an annual magazine is only a recent phenomenon. For others, we have magazines that cover over decades of a school's life and history. Darlinghurst is an example. It's a privilege and a pleasure to thumb through the stories of a school from year to year, its students, its staff, its achievements, development and struggles. The two magazines which are su subject of this analysis are those from St. Patrick's College Sale in the years of 1942 and 1944. Immediately, we understand that these are years of war and the pages will contain accounts of hardship and anxiety, of loss and heartache, and of a school working hard to make life as normal as possible for its students. Every school in the nation was doing the same. In 1942, St Patrick's was a day boarding college conducted by the Morris brothers. There were approximately 93 boarders and 48 day boys. The opening sentence in the magazine's foreword states, this has been another fateful year with the conflict far from decided. However, the second paragraph begins, a perusal of these pages will reveal that the normal life of the college has gone on as usual. In a section on information for boarders' parents is the statement of how a boarder should be outfitted. Maybe the line about underpants will give everyone a chuckle as it did to me. Below is the Leaving Honours class of 1942. If they did as well as their counterparts in 1940-41, then the results would have been extremely good, described as brilliant by the editor of the magazine. One boy mentioned for results in 1940-41 was a J. Doyle, winner of a junior scholarship. He sat the leaving in 1943 and attained third-class honours in Latin. Interestingly, a J. Doyle appears in a photo in the 1944 magazine of seminarians at Corpus Christi College, Werribee, who were old boys of St. Patrick's. As we've said, these were years of war. The In Memoriam page for 1942 listed three ex-students known to have been killed in action. The same page in 1944 listed 12. Among them, Private J. Justice, AIF, died in a prisoner of war camp of Beriberi. John Halton Justice, VX 23874, 
was born at Hayfield, Victoria in 1919. He attended Sale in 1932 and 1933 and sailed for the Middle East in 1940. He saw action in Benghazi, Tobruk, Syria and Palestine. He was transferred to Java and there taken prisoner. John died in rural main camp, Burma, on October 7, 1943, aged 24 years. As well as those KIA, the pages of the magazines are replete with stories of old boys who had been wounded or who were missing in action, seven in 1944, or prisoners of war, three in 1944. Many ex-students had returned to civilian life after active service. The principal in 1944 estimated that over 180 ex-students of sale were in the armed forces. A photo of Jay Casey appears in the opening pages of the 1944 magazine. This is John Casey, a member then of the Leaving Certificate class. He is the brother of our much respected brother Julian Casey, twice provincial of the former Melbourne province. The Casey brothers, John, Richard, Robert, brother Julian, and Michael, Father Michael Casey of Tarawara, all boarded at sale. John passed away in August this year. Another old boy of sale became a Marist Provincial, Brother Othmar Weldon, William Weldon, Provincial of the Sydney Province, 1964 to 1972. There is so much to comment on in these magazines. Many of the sentiments and often the language used is very dated, but historians do not judge in hindsight. Always though, the concern for the holistic education of the students and keeping an eye on what they should and could become when they leave school is evident. Maris call it becoming good Christians and good citizens. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please continue in your special way the work of St. Marcelin Champagne. Blessings to you all. Have a great day. And we'll be back for the final edition of Christ Life for 2023 in December. St. Marcelin Champagne, pray for us. And may we always remember to pray for one another. Bye for now.